Welcome to the People and Performance Podcast, featuring guest experts from such global brands as NASA, Salesforce, the Milwaukee Bucks, Staples Professional, IBM, Mutual of America, Zero, and Simon Sinek Inc. The show offers expert insights into the strategic capabilities and behaviors needed to grow and sustain employee performance. Welcome to this episode of the People and Performance Podcast. Hey, this is your co-host, Bill Bannum. In this episode, Chris Bjorling and I look back at the labor market over the past year and try to predict what recruiters, HR pros, and business leaders can expect from the labor market and recruitment technologies in 2024. Our guest this time is Andrew Flowers, labor economist at AppCast, a global leader in programmatic recruitment, advertising, tech, and services. A recognized expert on economic policy, the U.S. labor market and macroeconomics, Andrew brings nearly 15 years of industry insights and experience to his role. Throughout his impressive career, Andrew has produced more than 30 research reports and is often sought after to provide insights on the changing labor market. Andrew, welcome to our podcast today. Could you take a moment and introduce yourself and provide a brief overview of AppCast technology? Thank you, Chris. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on the People in Performance podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew Flowers. I am the lead labor economist at AppCast. Uh, what is AppCast? We are the global leader in, in programmatic recruitment advertising, which just means that we make job ads work better with data. Uh, prior to joining AppCast two years ago, I was an economist for Indeed.com's hiring lab, uh, and I have a 15-year history um, in economics and in um, uh, data science. I prior to Indeed worked at 538.com and and for the Federal Reserve. So at AppCast, uh, over the last two years, I've just been uh, honored to build a team of economists and data scientists whose goal is to understand the labor market, provide insights to our clients, and enable them through our technology to uh, hire the right people to power their organization. So let's start with the questions here. So let us start by... um asking you to provide an overview of what's happened to the labor market in the past year. And just take a couple of minutes to explain the nature and extent of the labor market's volatility and the reasons behind the massive numbers of job losses and uncertainty that exists for employers. And to top it all off, can you uh, throw in there a little twist on how inflation has impacted the job market and thus recruiting? Great question, Chris. So over the last year, the way I would summarize the U.S. labor market is that tech as an industry is the exception to a broadly tight labor market that that is cooling off, that is gradually loosening up. And so let me unwind what I mean by that. And to start with, let's go back to 2020. When the COVID pandemic hit, we saw advanced economies in North America and Europe have an almost instantaneous recession. We saw a lot of job losses. We saw high unemployment. And then in response to uh, fiscal stimulus, uh, near zero interest rates, um, and of course, in no small part, uh, the COVID vaccine, in 2021, economies took off. We saw labor markets just 
become very overheated in, in the sense of hiring it at a really accelerated rate. So uh, unemployment fell, growth uh, exploded. And so over the last year, year and a half, as we narrow in on this recent period, and we're recording now in July 2023, the word that comes to mind is resilience, because what happened out of the COVID pandemic was that inflation reared its head. And we saw inflation reach the highest point in many advanced economies in over 40 years. Uh, and to combat that inflation, central banks around the world, whether it's the Federal Reserve and the U.S. or the Bank of Canada or the European Central Bank, they jacked up interest rates starting in the spring of 2022. And so in the last year to year and a half, as interest rates uh, went higher to cool inflation, many economists expected the labor market to really uh, weaken. Uh, but we haven't seen that. And hence the term resilience. We've seen a tight labor market, uh, though it is loosening up gradually. And so I I've used that word tight now a few times. So what do I mean by that? Economists like to think of a tight labor market as simply where labor demand exceeds labor supply. It's, it's challenging for recruiters. It's a um, an, a labor market where job seekers have leverage. And we've seen that. And we've seen it uh, become resilient in the face of higher interest rates, in the face of, uh, of the inflation problem. Um, and so one way to think about it in the U.S., this labor demand exceeding labor supply is to just add up total employment plus job vacancies uh, or unfilled job openings. And that's at around 171 million. That's labor demand. Labor supply is just the labor force. The people who have a job or actively searching for work, that's 167 million. So 171 over 167. That's a 4 million almost uh, person gap where labor demand exceeds labor supply. That's what I mean when I say that uh, there's a tight labor market. And it's not just in the US, it's in Canada and many European economies. But tech is the exception. I mentioned this earlier and I want to come back to it. A lot of you may be scratching your head hearing me talk about how strong the labor market is because you're reading headlines about Meta or Google or Amazon laying off workers. And that's true. Uh, the tech sector is having its own labor market recession of sorts over the last nine months. The question for me and other economists is, is this becoming contagious? Are we seeing job losses spread from the tech sector to retail or healthcare or manufacturing? And so far, the answer is no. And we see that with unemployment rates remaining below 4% now in the United States for almost two years. We see it in strong job gains month after month, uh, especially in, in, in sectors like healthcare uh, and leisure and hospitality or the service sector. Um, so tech is its own animal here. And I don't want to minimize the disruption to knowledge workers, to software developers, to people in marketing and sales that do see a weak labor market in front of them. Uh, that's true, but especially in the so-called blue-collar industries um, uh, or service sector workers, we see a really strong uh, job market where, where job seekers have a lot of leverage. Um, and so with inflation coming down in recent months, it's an encouraging sign that actually central banks may have pulled off this pirouette of sorts where they were able to bring down inflation with higher interest rates, but not trigger uh, a widespread uh, wave of layoffs. It's just really hit tech. The People and Performance Podcast, supported by Fidelo Inc., is dedicated to offering tips and expert insights into the strategic capabilities and behaviors needed to establish 
grow, and measure the performance of employees. If you enjoy the show, why not subscribe and give us five stars through your favorite podcast app? We're hearing a lot from tech companies that they are yeah, they are struggling at the moment, as you, as you mentioned, um, but they also expect things to pick up for them in early Q4 of 2023. Uh, would you agree? And if so, why? I'm going to give an unsatisfying answer, <laughs> Bill. Yeah, um, in short, no, I, I do not expect significant improving uh, uh, improvement, um, rather, in um, the economies of the U.S. and Canada later this year. However, I don't expect the bottom falling out either. The, the way to think about this is, like I mentioned, with, with the high inflation problem and then the, the, the jacked up interest rates to slow uh, the economy and, and combat that high inflation, there's underlying momentum uh, in terms of consumer spending and business investment that's kind of powering through those high interest rates. But those high interest rates are going to take their pound of flesh, so to speak, eventually. And so despite all that kind of spending momentum and uh, strong hiring trends, in the face of high interest rates, I don't really see any economist expecting very uh, high growth, above trend growth. What, what I forecast is something around 1% annualized GDP growth, uh, real GDP growth. Uh, that's an inflation-adjusted gross domestic product growth. Uh, we've seen in Q1 of, of this year of 2023, um, uh, around 2% annualized GDP growth in the US. Uh, Canada has had a resilient uh, growth trajectory. And I expect that to kind of weaken, but not dip into a negative territory. And so in, in summary, the way I see the macro outlook is no recession in 2023, which was, again, <laughs> widely expected by a lot of economists that these interest rates would tip tip these economies into recession. But economists, I think, have seen the resilience of both the labor market, but of consumer spending and, and business investment. And so GDP growth has surprised to the upside, but those high interest rates remain. And I don't think the Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve are going to ease up because they, they don't want to prematurely declare victory over inflation. They want to see another three or six months of cooling inflation figures. And so because of that, interest rates will remain high. Growth will remain very mediocre. Uh, but because of that momentum of just spending and a tight labor market, I don't expect a, a recession in 2023. 2024 is another animal entirely. I don't have the the hubris to forecast a year out. I've been burned many times with that. I think a recession is entirely possible uh, next year. But so far, the economies um, of the US and Canada and Europe have surprised to the upside in that uh, later this year, don't expect a booming economy, but don't expect the bottom falling out either. Okay. I know you just said that you don't like to forecast a year out. However, you got me worried now. Um, put a percentage chance on a recession next year, Andrew. 35% chance of a recession next year. Uh, I think there's less than a 10% chance that a recession will be designated for this year, for 2023. But 2024, um, you know, is is a different animal because I, I do see a risk that the central banks will keep interest rates high and that with this kind of cooling trajectory, they're not going to ease up on that on that tightening of credit conditions. And so financial conditions, uh, things like high mortgage rates, high um, uh, uh, corporate bond spreads for, for companies to borrow, all these tight 
financial conditions, I think they could persist into next year. And if there's any kind of shock, maybe it's geopolitical shocks like the uh, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine or um, uh, further supply chain disruptions like we had in 2021, uh, any kind of shock like that could tip some of some of these major economies into a recession next year. But right now, the spending momentum, especially from consumers, uh, remains so strong and the labor market is kind of a, a, a so a, a strong feedback loop to that consumer spending that it will power us through the uh, second half of 2023 without a recession. Chris, we get some clever guests on this show. Eh? Um, okay, so last time you and I spoke, Andrew, it was all the way back at the end of 2021 on the HR chat pods. And uh, at that time, Biden had just signed off on the $1 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Um, Chris, if you don't mind indulging me just for a moment, I'd, I'd like to revisit this with, with Andrew. Um, and, Andrew, the, the infrastructure bill has the goal, of course, of improving US roads, bridges, water systems, it includes funding for projects in public transportation and broadband. Some reports estimated at the time back in 2021 that the infrastructure bill would help create around 1 million jobs over a five year period with the most immediate gains in construction. Um, my question for you is, you know, what's happened? What's been the impact of, of the act so far? So it's really a remarkable story in America right now regarding infrastructure, manufacturing. Um, and there's several pieces to this. So one way to start with uh, the, the renaissance of American manufacturing construction uh, is with the COVID pandemic and the uh, subsequent supply chain issues that we all recognized. Uh, you know, it's basically impossible to buy a used car, um, uh, new cars weren't being produced because of microchip shortages. We saw ports backed up. Um, uh, uh, just the the goods production network globally was 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 a bottleneck. And so, because of that, number one, a lot of manufacturers who had kind of bought into this globalization uh, just in time delivery model started to rethink that and and and, and decided maybe we should reshore manufacturing facilities or, or, or factories back into the U.S. so that we wouldn't have these supply chain issues. So that, that's one piece of the puzzle. On top of that is a wave of legislation. Now, you mentioned, Bill, um, the Biden administration's infrastructure bill. That's one piece of legislation. On top of that infrastructure bill, which is a trillion dollars, you saw the IRA, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which had a lot of uh, tax credits for clean energy and climate-related manufacturing or climate-related infrastructure. And then another bill, a third bill, so the Infrastructure Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was very climate-focused, and then a third bill called the CHIPS Act that focused on semiconductors um, specifically. And there's kind of a geopolitical issue with Taiwan um, and the reliance of, of Western economies on uh, semiconductors from Taiwan. And so the tax credits in the CHIPS Act, the kind of incentives, both actually carrots and sticks for uh, semiconductor uh, um, uh, facilities to be uh, built in America. All three of those pieces of legislation, Bill and Chris, have resulted in an absolute boom in manufacturing construction. And so what do I mean by manufacturing construction? It's literally just that. It's just how many billions of dollars is the U.S. economy seen being spent on building facilities like factories where manufacturing takes place? To give you a sense, like a year and a half ago, 
this was roughly 80, 90 billion dollars a year were, were spent. And it was pretty consistent over the last decade or so in manufacturing construction. Bill, it's more than double that. It's more than double the, the, the manufacturing construction in just the last 15 months. So it's around 180 to 190 billion now is, is happening. So just a wave of investment. And it's it's remarkable, Bill, because you think with higher interest rates, to go back to our earlier point about the economy having an inflation problem and central banks raising interest rates to kind of slow spending and, and kind of hopefully rear, uh, uh, rein in inflation, you would think that with higher interest rates, manufacturing, which is like a very uh, capital intensive industry, that it would suffer the most from higher interest rates. But guess what? Manufacturing employment, manufacturing investment has been surprisingly resilient because even as higher interest rates have kind of made these big capital intensive projects seem expensive in terms of their financing, there's just been so much legislative incentives, so many carrots in terms of the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act to build these facilities. And so that's yet another tailwind to the economy. In addition to the, the biggest tailwind of all, which is the strong labor market, the strong resurgence of manufacturing construction in America, the doubling of it in less than two years is really helping forestall a recession and uh, ignite a new boom uh, of reshoring facilities in America. Andrew, this has been spectacular. The insights you've given us are just wonderful and we see why you're so important in this field. Um, we thank you for the time. So now we have a couple of questions that we ask all of our, our guests as they come on board. So the first question is, in one minute or less, can you share one piece of advice or some direction that you were given by a mentor, leader, or colleague that inspired you to perform at a higher level in your career? The best piece of advice I've been given is to build T-shaped skills. And what do I mean by T-shaped skills? Like the capital T, where you want to have uh, a wide set of skills that are not necessarily very deep, but you know a bit of marketing, you you can write and communicate, you know how to do data analysis, you can speak publicly. Um, to have wide set of skills, that's the top of the T, but then have one or two deep specialization uh, in, in what you do best. Um, and so this idea of T-shaped skills boils down to, you know, in a corporate world or in an organization with lots of complexity, and we all work in these environments, it's important to have range, to, to know what others do, to speak the language of, of sales or marketing or, or tech, but also to you know only do what only you can do. And so that when you have a, a specialized skill set, you can go deep. That's the, that's the long part of the T. You have a skill set that you can bank on to be a high performer, but you're not so boxed in that you can't speak to others across an organization. I love that. That's great advice. All right. Last question for me today is from a culture and people processes perspective. What does a high performing company mean to you? From a culture and people process perspective, I, I think a lot of us have heard this famous saying before called, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. In other words, like culture matters more than strategy. So for a high performing company to answer your question, like what is that culture? Like what, what, what does a good culture mean? Um, I think it boils down to inclusion, kindness, and 
a phrase we have at AppCast that is a part of our values called speaking truth to power. So to start with inclusion, uh, I think a workplace culture that welcomes everyone uh, and sees people as people with families and obligations and and treats them as adults, but gives them flexibility to get their job done and, and welcomes them from whatever their background. That's, that's inclusion to me. Um, and in terms of how we build on inclusion and have kindness, uh, work hard, you know, be, be, be a, a high performer, but be kind. I mean, that, that's really what AppCast culture is about. And I think a, a strong culture has to be about kindness. And it starts with executive leadership. If you're not kind, that can create a toxic work culture. And um, again, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So kindness is, is key. And third and finally, th this, this value we have at AppCast of speaking truth to power. Um, you know, sycophants are not high performers. And I think sometimes company cultures can, even if they're kind and inclusive, they can uh, inculcate a culture where people are just kind of yes men and yes women. They just, they don't challenge their, their bosses, their supervisors. So at AppCast, when we say speaking truth to power, it means just that. It means yes, being kind, but if you if you believe that a strategy or a project is not going well, or if you disagree, to kindly speak truth to power and and and, and managers to not just expect that speaking to come from their uh, direct reports, but to encourage it. And and when you encourage your employees to speak truth to power and you're kind and you're inclusive, I think you have the foundation for a great company culture. Well, Chris and I think that you are kind and inclusive kind of a guy, Andrew, and we've enjoyed this conversation with you today, sir. But before we do finish off, how can our listeners connect with you? So LinkedIn, email, are you all over the Twitters and uh, TikToks of this world? And of course, how can they learn more about AppCast? I would start by recommending Recruitonomics.com. Uh, that's the uh, free uh, website that I, that I run. Uh, it's powered by AppCast and our data. Uh, you can sign up for our twice a week email newsletter. Um, and we have free reports on uh, numerous industries from healthcare to retail to manufacturing to tech uh, that we produce. Um, uh, we cover the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Germany, uh, and uh other advanced economies. So recruitonomics.com is a great way to kind of see this research and, and hear about us. Uh, for me personally, just follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. You should be able to search Andrew Flowers. That's my handle on Twitter. Uh, and who knows what company is going to, you know, uh, compete with Twitter, whether it's Threads or uh, <laughs> uh, Mastodon, these other Twitter competitors are coming out there. But just search for Andrew Flowers. I, I tweet a lot. I'm on LinkedIn and, and I'd love to uh, connect with your listeners. I opened my Threads account the other day. I'm a little bit confused by it at the moment. I'm not quite sure how the hashtags work in comparison to Twitter, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, Andrew, that, that just leaves Chris and I to say thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Bill and Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the People and Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to like, comment, and subscribe.